this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome. Our programming brings a diversity of voices connected to Myanmar to share their perspectives, thoughts, and reflections about what has been happening there since the military coup in 2021. All of our guests share one thing in common, a deep personal stake in the ongoing crisis. And it is an honor for us to be able to bring their voices into your earbuds. But however difficult it may be to hear some of their stories, we hope that you will come away with a deeper and more nuanced understanding of what is happening there. My guest today is going to be helping us look at a number of different dimensions of the deteriorating situation within Myanmar, both since the coup, but also with a bit of a view to the past and a bit of the view uh, to the future as well. But before we get into the many, many different topics that we're going to be covering today, I'd like to invite you to uh, introduce yourself for our guest, Manny. Thank you for coming. Thank you. My name is Manny Wong. I'm the uh, Myanmar researcher with Human Rights Watch. Excellent. And in that capacity, what do you like? What what do you really do? How do you get uh, your your information? That's a really good question. So you know, at the moment, um, there are many challenges because obviously Myanmar is no longer considered an open country. It's um, fairly closed in that um, there's rolling internet outages, um, communications shutdowns, like mobile phones um, not being work, not working in many areas. And um, it's really not easy to be able to travel from one place to another anymore. So really, we rely on, um, you know, obviously our own contacts, but um, a lot of the work now has moved towards digital verification processes, um, but also testimony, uh, which is the bread and butter of, of my work. Okay, so, so you would say you'd be getting a lot of first-hand uh, accounts and information from people within the country? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, my sole purpose really is to make sure that I'm getting um, interviews with people who've been affected by the coup, um, any survivors from attacks, um, first-hand witnesses, all of this uh, combined creates a picture that we can then disseminate. Let's start with a, a major dimension of this, and that is the changes that have been made within the legal framework itself. What is the experience of people going through the, let's say, legal process such as it is today under the military compared to going through the legal process under regular policing prior to the coup? So I guess now um, many parts of the country are under martial law, which changes, of course, the way in which, um, you know, people accused or civilians accused of committing crimes are tried. What it means is that the military is then trying or determining cases about civilians in a very closed court um, that's not open for scrutiny and the defendants are unable to get, um, you know, access to fair trial rights, for example, they don't even have a lawyer who can represent them. So a lot of it is arbitrary 
And, um, you know, in tandem, along with these types of changes to the way in which civilians um, are tried in a court, they're often also tried in prisons in these makeshift courts called special courts. Um, and, you know, there's very few lawyers who are able to go inside these prisons and act on their defence. So basically everything in Myanmar is now really determined by the junta's decision um, either in a military capacity or with their decisions that are being made in civilian courts. Um, can't really say that that's fair and, uh, you know, aligned with international standards of due jurisprudence. So let's look at that a little bit more more specifically. So the, the Burmese legal system, uh, the, the, the system of justice, uh, I presume, as it, as would be the case in most former colonies, would have been heavily based on on the British system of justice. So, our view, I think, as Westerners, uh, Anglo-Saxon Westerners, is typically that we're looking at a system where you have uh, access to pro bono legal counsel if you're not able to afford counsel. You you have access to a lawyer if you want one present during questioning and to advocate for you during a trial. And you have a trial by jury, which is open to the public. How much of that is accurate for the the Myanmar legal system prior to the coup? Um, so Myanmar never had a jury. It's always been adjudicated by a judge. Um, that hasn't changed. Um, we still have also a colonial era penal code in effect, and that's still applied actually under the, the legal um, structures. But what is different is that... Um, some of these, um, I suppose, punishments under the penal code have been extended. And since the coup, the military's also made a lot of changes to the laws um, and they've bypassed parliamentary processes and ignored their own um, constitution or the rules under the constitution in which to enact laws by just you know, arbitrarily approving them. And this all comes down to one person who signs away and it's men online. So he is, um, you know, using the 2008 constitution as an excuse to arbitrarily enforce the laws, which, you know, <laughs> deem to legitimize the junta. Mm. Okay. And so it's, <laughs> It's very difficult to sort of evaluate this in terms of normal international standards of law because we're so outside of the bounds of normal international practices of a legal system that it's it's difficult to even find a reference point um, for for comparison. I think we have to stop trying to compare. I think that's the point. I mean, basically, the military authorities are imposing um, these systematic obstacles for both lawyers and the defendants who are accused of committing crimes. And the sole purpose of that is just to fast track um, politically sensitive cases. So, you know, it's clear that these courts um, and these laws that they are introducing violate all the things that we're used to, like fair trial rights and due process. But I think we've got to stop comparing what the military is doing um, in in terms of like the usual rights that we enjoy, just because none of this is happening in Myanmar. And I hate to say it because I, you know, I really think this term is a bit overcoined <laughs> or overused in Myanmar. But really, um, the rule of law has collapsed. The institutions that were uh, holding Myanmar up, developing it so that it could continue on its path for democracy have been dismantled or are being dismantled. Um, and I think that there's some very heroic lawyers who are trying to uh, push back and maintain the rights that they know that, you know, Myanmar people deserve. But I think when you see these systematic obstacles of the structures being attacked and then the lawyers themselves also being harassed um, and detained and tortured and killed, just like everybody else. I think we can say that, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. So then, okay, so then they're not framing this in terms of contrast to a standard legal system. Let's just look at a hypothetical then. 
let's say we have a person who has been detained uh, off the street uh, by military or paramilitary or police or whatever it is this week. And Mm -hmm. an allegation has been made that this person is in some way, shape or form connected to the People's Defense Force. What what steps can this person anticipate and what protections can this person rely upon? So it would firstly depend on where this person has been picked up and also where this person has um, been accused of committing the crime. If either of those places happen to be under martial law, then that person can expect to be taken into um a military detention centre and um, face a military tribunal without access to a lawyer and without access to any type of defence. We have no visibility on what goes on in those military tribunals and they are the ones that are responsible for determining um, life sentences and death sentences. So, for example, in areas like, um, you know, Shwepitha, in Yangon, um, all of Chin State, parts of Zagain State, oh, Zagain region, I'm sorry, um, you can expect to be taken by uh, military authorities and then face a military tribunal. Now, if you're picked up, say, um, in other parts of like Yangon or Mandalay where there are no martial law um, restrictions in place, then you may just be taken to a normal prison facility, um, but depending on the conditions and depending on whether or not the courts or the normal civilian courts are in operation, you can also expect to be tried in the prison in a makeshift um, courtroom. And um, you may be allowed to see your lawyer once before your trial for 15 minutes Um, but you don't have any ability to see them one-on-one without um, someone else in the room listening to your conversation. Um, And what I'm being told is quite often the lawyers are not even able to see their clients until the day of the trial, um, if at all. So even now, from when I wrote my report in June looking into this, um, many of the rules have changed again and... Um, I'm hearing that it's getting even more difficult for lawyers to even access the courtroom to defend their person on the day of their trial. Wow. So so an individual could be expected to attempt to defend themselves, pro se, with no legal training at all? Um, I don't think they would be given the opportunity to, to be honest with you. So um, generally speaking, the lawyers who I've spoken to say that um, they're not allowed to present a defence because it can be seen as contempt of court if they're challenging the adjudicating judge. Um, and so what ends up happening is that they're offering bartering um, or asking for clemency on the um the, the conviction that their client may receive. So now that it's getting even harder for lawyers to go into the courtroom itself, um, I think the defendants can expect to get the, you know, strongest sentencing possible for whatever they're accused of. It's, it's just the absurdity of the concept of barring a lawyer from a courtroom. Well, it's not so different from... Um, what happened under, you know, the the Ban Shui government. So in the 60s when, you know, um, there was the first military, well, you know, some would say second, but when Ban Shui took over, um, it's not so different. The They dismantled um, the existing courts, you know, they they arrested the judges and the Supreme Court judges and then they began to instill their own people into these positions. And so historically um, the legal profession in Myanmar has never been very respected because it was always seen to be in the mouth of the military itself. Um, And so since you know, the changes that were taking place from about 2010, um, there's been real effort to 
develop and train um, many of the lawyers who who were in Myanmar to, to you know understand more about the international standards and bring the laws into line with international standards. Um, and of course, this included judges as well. But what we're seeing now is really um, a reversal of all the developments that that have been happening in the last decade. Um, and in some cases as well, you know, what I found to be happening to the legal system and to lawyers now, um, again, it, in the 80s as well and in the 90s, um, this is not unusual. So the special courts or these makeshift courts that are in the prisons. I mean, um, I think they used to call them people's courts. Um, and that was in the 90s. They did this as well. Uh, the way that they've attacked the legal systems and the, the way that they're removing fair trial rights, uh, it's all just circular and happening again, basically. But it, it, it's still kind of depressing, like like Dan Shui or Nia Win, like these should not be the yardstick of justice it's it's kind of sad if we have to say like oh yeah but it's just like that time but it's the same military yes. ultimately, that is perpetuating these crimes so i i'm not so surprised yeah so so okay so you mentioned um martial law and this distinction between uh areas that are under martial law and areas that are not under martial law now you also said that um the major cities are not under martial law so how has that evolved? Because I do recall in uh, March of 2021 or possibly April of 2021, they imposed martial law in six of the townships of Yangon and I think also in six of the townships of Mandalay. Have those been lifted since? No, no. So it's parts of the major cities that are under martial law. So as you say, um, there are parts that are under there. And um, in Yangon, I think, uh, yes, there are still six. Um, but actually in Mandalay region, they've been lifted. Okay. So, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't really make any difference because if you're going to get picked up, and held in military detention, you really don't know what's going to happen to you. And um, even, you know, with these prisoner amnesties and things that the military likes to make a show of every few months, um, there are people who have been released from prisons in those amnesties who tell me, you know, they have no idea why they were released um, and they have no idea why they would have been even put there in the first place. So it's all fairly arbitrary. Um, and again, the decision-making process is, is not sensible. It's, it's just the military um, acting in a way that is meant to chill the uh, dissent or any anti-coup activities. Um, and the way they, they do this is by being really unpredictable. And so what is, like, I'm wondering, what is the basis, legally speaking, for martial law? Like, is that them just making a declaration or is there at least some notional uh, right to impose martial law by the military? Um, well, they're using the constitution as an excuse. Um, basically, under that clause, 419, Minam Line is allowed to enforce, um, you know, a state of emergency. And what he's done is every six months extend that state of emergency. Although I'm also told, and other people will know this better than me, but um, the state of emergency clause is only there to be renewed um, two times and then there must be a general election. Mm. But now we've seen it being extended for a fourth time um, and that's basically the clause that is being used to justify all of this. So under the state of emergency, then the military can enforce martial law. Um, it's really interesting to note that they are very adamant to, you know, use the portrayal or the imaging of using legal parameters to justify what they do. And I think it goes to show that they do think of themselves seriously, they want to be taken seriously. And, 
you know, trying to even pretend that there's like a veneer of something legal to their actions um, is really, really indicative of how desperate they are to be seen as, as credible in the eyes of the international community. And I definitely want to move on to that. And we'll, we will get to that in a little bit because I, I want to talk about these these sham elections and why they're so obsessed with it. Um, but just on the legal uh, stuff before we move on, uh, a couple of things that I think are important to clarify. So one being habeas corpus, is there any system, like if you are picked up currently in Myanmar, does anyone know where you are or have you effectively fallen into a black hole? Um, yes, in, in most cases. And, you know, we, we know that at least there have been 24,000, um, people arrested since the coup. Um, there's an NGO called the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners who has been trying to monitor, um, arrests and convictions. But again, this is at least. So we, you know, assume that the numbers are far higher of people who have either slipped through the network or haven't been recorded or have been, in some cases, disappeared. Um, so really, you know, NGOs like the AAPP that are tracking arrests and detentions really rely on family members and people within the community to let them know if their loved one is missing or has been arrested or, you know, was seen in police custody the last time they were seen publicly. Um, but really, I think it's fair to say that this is, you know, um, these numbers are, are not indicative of the true numbers of people who have been arrested and taken away. And so uh, I know from, from when we spoke previously that the lawyers have, although you've just said that the lawyers have historically been viewed by Myanmar society as sort of puppets of the regime, um, that, that post-coup the lawyers have been essential as a conduit between the victims of, of what we can very euphemistically refer to as a legal system um, and, and their friends and their families on the outside. How have the lawyers as a community been faring under military rule? Ooh, that's a really, really good question. And I'm really glad you asked that because I don't think people do tend to think of lawyers as human beings who are under a lot of stress and pressure right now. Um, I don't think that they're faring well at all. I mean, you know, part of my research found that um, lawyers themselves are being harassed, surveilled, their families are being harassed and surveilled. And really, if you are defending um, people who have been accused of crimes like sedition or treason or um, terrorism, then the military basically views you as being um, somehow implicated in, you know, the crimes that the defendant is being accused of. So in some cases, um, we found that these you know, advocates or, or um, high court lawyers who are able to uh, defend clients, they themselves were being arrested as they left the courtrooms um, and their crime would have been to defend possibly a high-ranking, um, you know, member of parliament or a member of the National League for Democracy. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty clear that um, the military sees them also as, you know, part of this anti-coup movement as well. Okay, so, so it's not just that the military have made it difficult for lawyers to be able to advocate for their clients mechanically um, by, by sort of barring them from access and barring them from the courtroom, but is also trying to impose a chilling effect by targeting lawyers who do try to stand up and defend their clients. Exactly. Um, and it's very difficult for lawyers to operate um, under these conditions as it is. But then added to that are the challenges of, you know, having to go into a prison setting to defend your client, um, having guns pointed at you as you go to your work every day. 
uh, it, it's been extremely taxing on them. I mean, that's that's horrific. So let's let's look at a very very unusual, uh, an atypical case here. Very recently, we were told that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and um, President Win Myint had uh, charges, although not charges amounting to a particularly significant number of years of incarceration compared to all the rest, but had a number of charges dropped against them. Uh, and also that Aung San Suu Kyi had been moved to, to house arrest. Now, previously, Aung San Suu Kyi's lawyers were once again a very important conduit between her and the outside world. The military clamped down on that. Uh, and we've heard scant little from Aung San Suu Kyi uh, just because the military have kept her under wraps. Do you think... And, and I know this calls for conjecture, but do you think that Aung San Suu Kyi is going to be in a position to be able to address the public anytime soon, or will she continue to be kept under lock and key? Oh, I, I doubt she'll be given the opportunity to speak to anyone. Um, I, I don't think it's very um, likely that she'll be making public speeches, um, considering that she's also being kept away from daily communications with, um, you know, just other people who might be coming and going. Um, I know that the the shaving of the um, the convictions. I mean, <laughs> this shouldn't be mistaken for any real change to you know the human rights situation in Myanmar. Um, I think Aung San Suu Kyi had like six years shaved from her 33-year conviction and President Win Myint had just four years shaved off his 12-year conviction. So the convictions were also completely bogus um, and I, I just don't see that as any real change towards um, the human rights situation in Myanmar at all. It's really unlikely that the military would allow her to speak publicly um, because what they want to do is avoid any groundswell or morale um, that could be gained from it for, for the people of Myanmar. And so this is, this seems to be, it's so emblematic. Like for those who are not familiar, Myanmar has for a very, very, very long time had this practice of, of pretty much annual waves of amnesties for prisoners where sentences would be reduced or some people would be released, typically not political prisoners, but a lot of other prisoners. And there is, I, I think, a big push on the part of the military to look good. Like this is a subject of countless Burmese memes, very similar to the people who sell sparrows for, for people to release for good karma only for those same people to go out and then recapture those sparrows so that they can sell those sparrows again. It's, it's a performative act of releasing while then going around behind the scenes and recapturing people achieving nothing. Why does the military keep up this pretense when everyone can see through it? <laughs> um, yeah, it is very cynical. And I guess my cynical response is that um, they release all these people so that they can make room for more people to be arrested. Wow. <laughs> I mean, what we see generally is, yes, um, the amnesties are usually timed around, um, you know, key dates of Buddhist holidays. Um, sometimes the junta has said that the releases are based on, you know, humanitarian grounds. And I think um, when they shaved the sentences off um, Aung San and Wenmyeon, they also cited humanitarian grounds for doing so. Um they also released about 8,000 other prisoners um, the same time of the announcement in early August. Um, but what we found is that most of these prisoners um, were due for release already. So uh, they had already spent the majority of their convictions in prison anyway. And um, the data so suggests that basically, um, you know, only a small fraction of those released are political prisoners. So when we think about the number of prisoners right now who have been detained since the coup, um, over 24,000, I would consider all of them political prisoners because they have all pretty much been arrested due to their anti-coup activities. Hmm. So it's... It... <sighs> It's un it's unsurprising, but it's 
at the same time, I don't know, do, does the military hope that this is actually going to buy them some positive PR, either domestically or abroad? I think it does in some circles. And I think that, I mean, really, it's just a ruse that they can say, look at what we did and, um, you know, here is an example of a small act of kindness. Basically, the day after um, Men Online extended the six-month uh, state of emergency, um, they then announced the reduced sentences of Aung San Suu Kyi and women the next day, and they released these prisoners. So really, I mean, it's just an act to deflect any international scrutiny, particularly from the regional partners um, or, you know, ASEAN partner countries who who may have wanted to have a strong word with them. Um, it's it's just a way to deflate the, the negative, um, you know, feedback that they might get. So really it is a ruse. They, it does seem to work sometimes. And this is the problem because again and again, um, I think that we give far too much store to these small acts and there just isn't that unified and coordinated pressure from the regional countries that we keep talking about. Um, you know, they mm. keep buying into this and they keep allowing it to be excuses. And just like on that same sort of note, uh, so the the election, which, which you mentioned that the election's been put off, uh, what... <laughs> Do you, do you have any insight into what the military is hoping to accomplish with these elections? Because these elections are under the rules that the military have rolled out for, for the election. It's laughable. You can't register as a political party unless you put a significant donation into the military's pocket uh, and unless you open and maintain offices in, in you know, very, very unstable and unsafe uh, townships and all these sorts of absurd things. No one in the country would take this election seriously. And no one internationally would take it seriously. It's already been um, preemptively condemned by a large number of countries uh, abroad. Why is the military continuing with this ruse? Um, unfortunately, I disagree with you there. I, I do think that there are some countries that are willing to take it seriously. I mean, what we know about this right now is that um, I'll answer your first question about you know why they want to extend the the state of emergency. And really it's because they don't have a grips on um, stability yet. There's still a lot of, um, you know, popular dissent and obviously resistance and armed resistance against um, the military. So I think what they're wanting to do is have another six months to really go hard, increase their air and and ground attacks and try to um, force stability um, in, in regions that are really, really um, not stable. So, you know, parts of Zagayan, parts of Chin State, parts of the southeast in Myanmar. Um, then I think what they're going to do is really focus on the parts of Myanmar where they do have more of a grip. Um, so, you know, the parts of Yangon, Mandalay, um, even parts of Rakhine where they've traditionally had a really, really um, a, a strong grip there. And, I mean, I just don't see that um, it's going to be easy for them. Um, however, I am really concerned about other countries like Japan, India, China, who are supporting the the military's um, rhetoric to go ahead with these elections. Um, we know that India has provided some technology to start collecting biometric data. Um, the military has started to apparently collect its own census in pilot trials, um, and it has digitized a lot of the personal details of um, Myanmar's uh, voting public from the previous census. So all of this 
in a way, moving towards um, increased surveillance, increased digital surveillance, and also, um, you know, questions around these citizenship rights of, of minority groups. You know, if we're really concerned about things like statelessness of the Rohingya and um, their lack of ability under Myanmar's laws to gain citizenship, I think it's going to further exacerbate those concerns. Uh, but also it's really, really worrying that um, I've been told from some ASEAN countries that should Myanmar decide to hold elections, they would send election observers, they would send short and long-term observers to monitor and to try and provide some kind of support. So unfortunately, I don't think that um, it's universal that everyone would see these sham elections to be, you know, just a, another act of the military trying to regain power. I mean, I, I definitely take your point. Um, and I, I absolutely share the concerns when it comes to countries specifically like the ASEAN countries in India and China. Um, in the sense that I get the feeling that these countries are looking for an excuse to legitimize a regime that they know is unlawful, but beneficial to them. But re yeah, exactly. And regionally, we are seeing a rise in authoritarianism. And, um, you know, why would they be motivated to criticize the military when many of these countries have themselves not had, um, you know, exactly democratic transitions from one power to another. So it, it's a way to deflect scrutiny on themselves as well. And, um, you know, what we're seeing is that they are more reluctant than other countries to, to be vocal about their criticism. And this just leads me to a, a topic that I've, I've spent a lot of time pondering since the coup. And forgive me if this is far too abstract and philosophical, but what is, what is the essence of legitimacy? Like what makes something legitimate? If the elections were to be held as, as false as we know ahead of time that they would be, if these elections were accepted by the regional community as though they were real, does that effectively legitimize the military dictatorship? Is there any way to supersede the opinions of these countries and these governments and, and force their hand to say, no, you can't acknowledge an election that you know was carried out fraudulently? Um, oh, that's a really, really hard question because as I said to you again, you know, like there has been a rise of authoritarianism in, in Asia. Um, but under the current circumstances, I mean, there's no way that under the junta and a junta's elections, could we say that any of that was um, free or fair or in the least credible. Um, we need real participation from the public. We need real participation from a myriad of political parties. And um, I will take it seriously if the the military returns Myanmar to civilian democratic rule. If they want to hold new elections and they allow it to be under a civilian democratic process, then I will take that seriously. But if the junta is going to organize the elections, collect the census data, collect the voter registration data and run the whole thing by themselves, then of course not. Um, and ultimately, you know, this whole political parties registration law is a way to remove any real competition. Um, they, in effect, want to install their own single state party, so to speak. I mean, any any of these parties that are running right now are either proxy parties for the junta or um, you know in in cohorts with them. So. I don't see that it's it's a real competitive process in any way. Mm. And and unfortunately, that is already the model that we see in Laos and that we see in, in Vietnam and we see in Cambodia. So yeah, uh, a lot of friends in the area. Lots of friends. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, but so this this sort of broadens up the topic of discussion then to to the international duty and the international responsibility here. Um, mm -hmm. 
we we both seem to be of the view that ASEAN and India and China, for their part, are not particularly interested in decisively unseating a military dictatorship in Myanmar. They they actually positively see some advantage to that, and even those within ASEAN who have more democratic leanings, uh, absolutely the the Malaysian Foreign Minister Saifuddin Abdullah, uh, back before he his party lost power, did a lot. I think within ASEAN to try and advocate for for genuine democracy and and a genuine return to the rule of law, uh, but they just seem to be drowned out by a culture within ASEAN of not rocking the boat and mm-hmm. not directly interfering in in other nations' affairs. And and I know this is such a broad blank slate question to ask, but what what really is the international community's responsibility? Who should be stepping up, if anyone, and what is it that they should be doing, if anything? That's a really good question again. I So look, some, some people would say that um, international pressure such as sanctions uh, are not working, right? And um, I would say that targeted sanctions were never meant to be a silver bullet. They're just yet another tool that we can use to create more pressure. And a really good example of that um, are the sanctions imposed by the United States on um two of the the state banks in Myanmar. Um, And what that means is those banks are no longer allowed to receive or transfer um, revenue in US dollars anymore. Um, And that has really spooked uh, countries like Singapore who have um, mainly provided the backing for for many of the banks in Myanmar. it's had a knock-on effect that's been positive and it's forced Singapore to um, respond in its own restrictions where it has um, frozen the accounts that are suspected to be in use for military um, and it has restricted transactions of those individuals in Myanmar who may be some way um, involved business ties to the military as well. So I think we are slowly seeing those effects, but um, there are other things like the sanctioning of Myanmar oil and gas enterprise that we haven't seen that would cut billions of dollars in revenue to the military and it would really restrict um, their ability to purchase weapons from countries like China and India and Russia. Um, We've seen recently again um, by the United States uh, restrictions on aviation fuel. But Canada is the only other country to have um, full restrictions on the sale and purchasing and supply of aviation fuel. So again, we just need to see um, those restrictions being tightened and strengthened and supported by other countries like, you know, the European Union bloc, um, by the UK, by Australia, um, by India, by by Japan, you know. So I know that um, it may be naive to think that a lot of these countries will come and uh, join the sanctions, but I think that the more the pressure builds, um, the military is, is really going to feel the heat. And ultimately what we're trying to do is cripple their ability to purchase um goods and dual use goods that are then used to attack their own civilian populations. Um, I'm actually not as cynical about this. I think that eventually it'll work. It's just a question of how long can people in Myanmar hold out? Um, And, you know, there are very real world concerns um, about the ability for Myanmar people to have access to livelihoods, have access to food. You know, we have a quarter of the population who are facing um, real food shortages and I think something like 18 million people in need of humanitarian aid. So the longer that um, other countries and other governments continue to hesitate, the longer it works in the favour of the military. And that is what we're trying to stop. We're trying to shorten that amount of time that it takes for governments to pressure the military. So I'm, I'm glad that you're not 
uh, pessimistic when it comes to to sanctions, uh, mostly because I myself am, and, and and I'd like to sort of hear a bit more about uh, the sort of path, a potential path to success for sanctions, because you know we've interviewed um, people with regards to jet fuel, we've interviewed people with regards to MOGE and and petrochemical supplies, and it seems to be the case that as far as Myanmar is concerned, things like MOGE, even if it were sanctioned it wouldn't necessarily achieve all that much because the majority of the revenue from MOG is coming from places like Thailand. Uh, when it comes to sanctions, I, I just think of North Korea. And I, I remember this interview with a, a former North Korean uh, agent who basically said that, well, you know, I can be sanctioned, but my name can be changed. I can, I can just legally change my name. Companies can be, can be dissolved and can be founded. Uh, and new legal entities can exist that exist outside of sanctions. And when we have these highly targeted sanctions, I always think that sanction busting and sanction skirting doesn't seem to be that difficult. We did an interview recently about uh, illegal teak exports and how easy it was for people trading in teak to effectively launder a, a very large, very bulky physical commodity with a manifest and say, oh no, this is not Myanmar teak, or this is not post-coup teak. This is this is some totally different teak that comes from some mythical other country that has a massive teak export business. Uh, and people will buy it, people will believe it. So this is my, my question is, what do you think is the pathway for sanctions imposed by Western countries to actually be effective in shutting the military off from its, its revenue streams? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of it, I, I, like I said to you, I don't think targeted sanctions are the only way. I think it's a tool that we can add on to create pressure. And ultimately what this shows um, is that there's a lack of enforcement. Um, there's a lack of coordination, as I've said before. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The European Union can put in and has done for many years now um, sanctions in place for Myanmar hardwood. But we also know that um, the EU is possibly the second or third largest export target for Myanmar teak. And the reason why is because the European Union may enforce or announce these sanctions, but it's up to those member states to enforce that law. And that's where we're finding the gaps and the loopholes that people um, can circumnavigate around. Um, you know, just to be clear, sanctions circumventing is a massive crime. And there are um, individuals who've been uh, persecuted for it. Really, at the end of the day, it's making it as difficult as possible for the exchange of monies and revenues and escalating that risk for um, financial partners who are doing business with Myanmar. It's really um, an exercise to isolate the Myanmar military and their business partners as much as possible. Um, and, you know, I don't think that we have really used all the tools that we have you know, we haven't seen the UN Security Council put in a global arms embargo, which is then enforceable. We haven't seen them even refer the Myanmar country situation to the International Criminal Court. Why? I don't know. Um, we haven't seen these sanctions on Moji as, as we would like to. And I think that at least that would send a very strong message to uh, the banks and the insurers who provide things like insurance for aviation cargo fuel you know um i just think that if anything that coordinated effort from the international um governments uh, it, it's just not being done in a way that creates that maximum pressure on myanmar right now and it's a bit too slow um but i don't think that it's impossible to get there um, and I don't think it's too late to adopt, you know, measures that will work. We've got the G20 coming up. We've got the ASEAN summit coming up. And I think there really needs to be some tough conversations there about what they're going to do to hold Myanmar accountable. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I just want to go back because you, you mentioned the United Nations and I don't know um, whether your, your expertise also extends to the United Nations. Mine definitely does not. But 
Um, so my, the understanding that I have, though, is that as a result of Russia and China both being permanent members of the Security Council, in essence, the United Nations is hamstrung. Yeah. I mean, if, if there are any referrals for Myanmar to be referred, you know, to, to have a resolution where there is a, a, a global arms embargo on dual-use goods and arms, um, I, I think this would make a significant difference to the way that the military um, can respond to the anti-coup movement. I mean, we do know that the military is producing a lot of their own um, weapons and, you know, jerry-rigging, like, uh, a lot of the manufacturing parts that go into Myanmar legitimately for use against civilians but this is what i'm saying is like there's no one magic solution that's going to solve this right we have a really despotic leadership in the military where if you remove men online from that equation there is somebody else behind him to step his place and we're going to have a similar if not worse situation because they've been building and cultivating this um you know, entity to be effectively, um, a, a, yeah, a dictatorial rulership. So we need to respond in kind. I don't think it's going to be just getting rid of men online will fix everything either. I think there's somebody else in place who can come in and, and create even more of a crisis. So it's about making sure that the military cannot keep on succeeding in its ability to, um, yeah, keep keep Myanmar people oppressed and prevent them from gaining what they want, which is a democracy. That's all people in Myanmar have ever asked for. And um, that has been consistently denied to them by subsequent military leadership. Absolutely. And on this, and I know this is a very hot button issue, um, so I'd understand if you don't have an opinion or if you don't want to comment on this, but do you have a view on the potential value of sending uh, what's being termed lethal aid to the resistance movement? I mean, I, I can't support that. And, and Human Rights Watch doesn't really support um, or not support armed resistance. I mean, just it's more about the fact that, you know, would these people who are receiving um, that type of aid understand the laws of war you know, if they're going to take up arms, then are they abiding by um, the principles under international humanitarian law? Um, are they ensuring that they're not committing crimes themselves? And that's the key. So I don't believe that it's a panacea, and I, I think that we have to be really careful with, mm -hmm. with the way we treat that. I, I think that's very fair. I think that's a very... Uh measured uh, attitude to take to it although i do I, I do find it the way that you phrased it um you say like if they take up arms to which my my response is to say that uh, i mean obviously you would be aware of this as well that many of them already have taken up arms and the, many haven't yeah, there true. are other ways to have resistance too yeah this is true this, yeah i mean i think that's fair i think that's fair um but so talking about the deterioration of the situation uh, across the country, and you've mentioned previously that it, it, it's a question of how long can the people hold on. Mm -hmm. So let's then turn to to one of the more dire examples of this. Um, so it, it, the Rohingya community have been famously hard hit. Uh, this this military, the Myanmar military, apparently since its inception, have had um, a a sort of particular hatred uh, of the Rohingya. And, uh, and and we saw six years ago a, a massive, massive migration of people out of the country, uh, sheerly for survival. How, how have, has the fate of the Rohingya and the, the circumstances of the Rohingya people changed since the coup? Has there been any amelioration of their plight? Unfortunately, um, I think it's a pretty bleak future for, for Rohingya who are in both um, Bangladesh and Myanmar. 
Um, we still have a million people um, in camps in Bangladesh who are unable to go home and living in semi-permanent housing that was meant to last only, you know, a year or two. Um, and as you said, it's been six years already where, um, you know, very little has been done in the way of recognizing their right to citizenship in Myanmar. And certainly the situation now doesn't help improve the conditions for Rohingya who are um, also in the country. Um, you know, we've determined that they're living in apartheid conditions in Myanmar. And um, if any Rohingya who are, you know, forced or coerced or choose to come back to Myanmar, um, would be returning to those apartheid conditions. But, um, you know, it's it's clear that they're trapped on both sides and that there really hasn't been any justice done for their plight. So we failed them. And it's even worse for Rohingya because they are stateless. Um, I think that the coup, obviously, we all saw, um, you know, some recognition from parties that, um, yeah, the Rohingya really unnecessarily suffered and perhaps that the denial of their existence, um, you know, certainly was made worse in Myanmar um, by people refusing to acknowledge that, that they're part of the community and the fabric there. Um, but I think this is a mistake that we can, as you say, ameliorate. We can have a progression where you know Myanmar is actually returned to the people, have a civilian democracy, democracy um, that doesn't include twenty five percent seats to the Myanmar military and parliament, and I think there's more of a willingness to engage, particularly with the younger generations, um, about the abuses and the crimes that they may have unwittingly been complicit to. Um, and I think that is a really, really good starting point for, you know, healing and accessing justice, but also making sure that um, it's a much more inclusive um, society. And I think that's that, that's sort of the the to, to use a bit of a sort of poetic turn of phrase, the promised land, as it were, <laughs> um, that everyone wants to sort of move towards. But do you so do you have in your mind? Uh, I'm wondering a sort of roadmap or a pathway from where the country is now to to that sort of stable, democratic um, country governed by the rule of law and the respect for for different ethnic groups and different religious groups and different cultural groups. Like, can you like how how do you envision that uh, that process occurring? If you have any sort of idea of how it's likely to happen. Oh, gosh. I mean, I don't think I'm the right person to, to talk about that. I think, you know, you'd need someone who has been fighting the fight much longer and, you know, perhaps it's someone who's an, an ethnic, um, part of an ethnic group in Myanmar or one of the women's rights um, groups in Myanmar. Um, my, my hope is that I got to Myanmar, um, you know, Having having left the country when I was a very small child, um, I returned as an adult and chose to live there. Um, and I got there when it was at a point where there was a lot of hope and there was a lot of, um, you know, treasures in the way that um, people could access um, the educational development, um, finally be connected with the international um, communities because they've been isolated for so long. And I think that I hold on to that because I got there at a time when, I mean, people had forgotten about Myanmar. People had forgotten about this, you know, place in Southeast Asia that everyone just assumed would be a draconian military dictatorship forevermore. Um, but it was just such a time of um, vision and I think that we can get there again. So I'm not willing to let that go completely yet. I think Myanmar will have a lot of problems. You have a generation now that is very used to extreme violence, um, you know, let alone 
talk about the trauma and um, the the types of violence that they've been exposed to. But there's also some hope in sort of starting from the beginning again, you know, perhaps if we can actually move towards somewhere that doesn't have the military as part of that, um, you know, underlying fabric of society, I think we can get to a better place. And I wonder, do you think that this is something that can happen in Myanmar in isolation, or is this something that really needs to sort of happen regionally? I think regionally um, we need the support and, um, you know, we need that political will to help push out the military from those governance structures. But at the same time, I think that um, the Myanmar people can do it on their own. They've, they are doing it on their own and they've shown that they're willing to keep going on their own. So um, they just need that help to get there. I think, I think it's a very sort of uplifting uh, <laughs> note to, to, to be on. Uh, yeah. So I think, I think we, I we've covered it. I can't do yeah. my job if I'm completely pessimistic all the time. And I won't lie, it's, it gets really, really dark some days. But like I said to you, um, I, I know that there are people still in Myanmar who are um, continuing to fight for something that they believe in, which is to just be able to enjoy their freedoms. And I think we all have the responsibility to at least share some of that and ensure that we're doing what we can so that, you know, they can get there. And, and I've, I agree with that wholehearted. I, I agree that it, it, it can get dark, like the, the depths of, of depravity that the military can visit on a, on a civilian population is um, shocking. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure you've been exposed to far worse than I have uh, in in your work, but I, I agree. It's that it's that motivation to 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 try to do something for those people who are trying to you know live without without having to pay an existence tax to uh, to a dictatorship that sees them as slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it's very commendable. And I think we've we've covered a, a lot of different topics on the. Uh, the the conflict and uh, potential prospects for the future, and I want to thank you for discussing those. Uh, by convention, we we finish our episodes by inviting the guests to um, share with the listeners some some thoughts or some message that you would like the listeners to really take to heart and and mull over as they uh, go on about their days. Uh, so, if uh, if there's any uh, particular message uh, that you would like everyone to 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 think about and and ponder. I'd like to invite you to share that with them now. Oh, gosh. Um, That was a nice surprise that you just launched there on me. (laughs) Um, Wow. I guess um, don't take your rights um, lightly, you know. Express your rights in the way of civil disobedience if if a government or if a political party tells you that it has to be one way and you wholeheartedly disagree, then make sure you voice that. And I think that um, Australians, I think, sometimes have a very good lifestyle and tend to not want to take part in, um, I suppose, their civic duties. But really, those rights can be taken away from you at any given moment, and I don't think you should take them for granted. So just make sure to take part in it because people are dying just um, for the right to have that. After today's discussion, it should be clear to everyone just how dire the current situation is in Myanmar. We're doing our best to shine a light on the ongoing crisis, and we thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found today's talk of value, please consider passing it along to friends in your network. And please also consider letting them know that there is now a way to give that supports the most vulnerable and to those who are especially impacted by the military's organized state terror. Any donations given to our nonprofit mission, Better Burma, will go to the vulnerable communities being impacted by the coup. 
If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, ba, yaranan da, da, yaranan, 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 da, y